Hello, and thank, thank you for listening to Subject to Interpretation. Interpretation. Hosted by Augustine De La Mora. My name is Claudia. And my name's Kayla. And we are the producers of this program. Before we get into today's interview with special guest Dorinka Manjino, who is a conference interpreter and has also gone viral on Facebook for her amazing long consecutive ability, we wanted to bring you the latest announcements from De La Mora Interpreter Training. If you found us on Facebook, we'd like to remind you that you may download us directly to your phone wherever podcasts are available. Now on to some more, more exciting, exciting news. news. The time is almost here for our annual Finding the Parallel Summit, beginning November 9th with our welcome reception, which, by the way, is free to the public. This reception will include a panel with surprise guests, food, and drinks. So come out that Friday and learn more about the world of interpretation or bring a friend with you, someone who may be interested. Yes. And following the reception on November 10th and 11th is the skill building workshop where you will attend seminars hosted by certified professionals and network with colleagues in both the legal and medical fields. You don't want to miss this and all the details will be in the description bar below. Now stay tuned for next week's podcast featuring Robert Cruz, who is the Executive Director of the National Association of Judiciary Interpreters and Translators, better known as NAGIT. Yes, we appreciate all of you guys for listening in. We pride ourselves on being one of the very few podcasts for professional interpreters out there, so please share us with your colleagues. We would love to hear your feedback and questions, and beginning next week, we will be answering your frequently asked questions here live on the podcast, so please feel free to contact our office, and, and you'll most likely speak to one, one of us. Until next week, now enjoy the interview with Derenka Manjino. Goodbye. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome to Subject to Interpretation. I am your host, Agustin de la Mora, and I am in Mexico City. And I have the pleasure to introduce to you one of the most renowned and well-known interpreters in Mexico. Uh, her name is Darinka Manjino. And That's she's right. right here with me. And uh, without further ado, I'll let her introduce herself. So, good morning. Good morning, everyone. Thank you, Agustin, for this kind invitation. I'm very happy to be here with you and share a little bit about my story with all of the members of your school. And by the way, I love the name Subject to Interpretation. Yeah, it's it, wonderful. It, 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 it fit like a glove, I think. Yes, it does. So tell us a little bit about yourself. You, you, what area, area of interpretation do you specialize in? I'm basically a diplomatic interpreter, and uh, I specialize in a way in court interpreting because it is a new field in Mexico, but I basically teaching teach it and research about it. Mm -hmm. So when you say <laughs> diplomatic interpretation, tell us a little bit about what that entails. Oh, that could take us a long time, but uh, sure. in a nutshell, uh, we help leaders in this particular case, the president of Mexico and his cabinet, when they meet with their counterparts, the presidents who come and visit, prime ministers, kings, queens, members of the clergy, you name it, everyone who has a special function and when they come to, a, to visit our country in an official visit or a working visit, there are interpreters present. In my case, I am part of the English-Spanish team. I also interpret from French, but basically my combination is language and English. And well, in this day and age, 
most people speak English, even when they have a different national language. They rather when they're in a group of people where there are several languages spoken, English is the preferred language. We could say that it's a lingua franca of diplomatic exchanges, which is a change, isn't it? Because wasn't mm -hmm. French in the past considered a diplomatic language, and now mm -hmm. I guess English took it over. It took it, yeah, it took over, and well, a special variety of English. We could say it's a global English, mm -hmm. like the Euro English that they had in in the European Union. I don't know what they're going to do now when they're going to take <laughs> English out of the mix, but but yes, English is widely spoken. So that sounds very interesting. So you mm -hmm. have been present in some negotiations. You probably can't tell us about it, or you would have to kill us after. after <laughs> telling us <what> it is. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that used to happen in the past. <laughs> Very long time ago, but uh, yes, I've had the honor and the privilege of uh, being the personal interpreter so far for two presidents of Mexico mm -hmm. and several secretaries. So yes, there are a variety of settings where we help them by being their voice in English and uh, Uh, it could be when they come and, uh, as I said, pay an official visit, when they have working meetings, where they talk over the phone, when the presidents and secretaries travel to other countries and, uh, well, they, they have meetings and they are also taken to wonderful places that not many people have the privilege to witness with their own eyes. So I've been in beautiful locations as an interpreter. Otherwise, I would never have been there. That's wonderful. I, mm -hmm. I, I was wondering if you get mm -hmm. to travel sometimes to these exotic locations as an interpreter for the president. We do. We do. We travel a lot. It depends on how busy their international agenda is, but they're usually, let's say, throughout the year, specific uh, for uh, a specific meetings that they all attend. It starts in February with the World Economic Forum. It might be, I can't remember the exact month of the year where APEC takes place, but there are meetings where you have a, a group of countries meeting and some uh, countries like Mexico uh, were, were invited to, to be part of their talk. So yes, there's a, a lot, a lot going on on an average year. And of course, the countries invite other presidents to visit them. And it depends on how, how many, how many visits they have planned. And uh, well, we're so close to the United States. So there is a lot of interaction mm -hmm. with the, with your country. And yes, I've, I've traveled a lot. To very remote places. <laughs> That's awesome. But how did you? Uh, mm -hmm. How did that? Tell us a little bit. How did that Inca become mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. a mm -hmm. an interpreter for such important people? Did you mm -hmm. like when you were nine years old? That when I was nine <laughs> years old, I wanted to be, of course, a firefighter or something like that. But mm -hmm. did you wake up one day and say, "I really want to be an interpreter"? Because I have to tell you, I never mm -hmm. thought I was going to be an interpreter. I didn't grow up thinking I was going to be an interpreter and. Mm -hmm. I ended up in one. So how did it happen to you? It happened in a way very similar to your story when I was, it was not when I was nine, but I remember that the moment, the moment I could speak, I knew that I wanted to be an astronaut. And most okay. of my, but I was serious about it. And mm -hmm. I wanted to study science and I wanted to do whatever it took to become an astronaut. But back then, Mexico didn't have a space program. So if I wanted to follow <laughs> that path, I would have to study a Abroad. And everything got complicated along the way. 
way. I tried hard. I wrote to NASA. I got all the information that uh, any little girl that asked for information would get. So I, I got what it, uh, what what I needed back then to decide where to study. But everything was a roadblock on that uh, on that mm-hmm. particular path. So when the time came to decide to join the university, well, I just had no options, and my family was very worried because I was a good student. Mm-hmm. I was good uh, for for many many subjects. Math was not an issue while well, I wanted to be a scientist so, so that, yeah yeah so so it uh, coincided that I was the family's interpreter and uh, mm-hmm. back then I lived in a little town in Hidalgo and I was the only person who could speak English and uh, where my mother used to work they needed a translator so I was I believe 16 or 17 and I got to translate four or five books about a hunting reserve so okay. yeah yeah so <laughs> After that, I became a vegetarian, but that's a that's a different <laughs> story. <laughs> yeah, that's a different story. But I got myself into translation without noticing that that was a profession. So then, my grandmother met uh, the accountant of a school here named. Uh, in Mexico City, the ICIT, it's, uh, it has the same name as the school that you would find in Paris. Mm-hmm. But uh, then she told me, well, I know that we haven't found the best career for you, but in the meantime, why don't you visit this school? I think you like languages. I think they have something similar to what you do with, with your mom translating. So I said, okay, let's give it a try because I, I want it and I need it to be part of a, of a program. I, I just wanted to be in mm-hmm. in a in a university so the moment that i got to the school i decided okay i'm going to be a translator but i didn't know what interpreting was until the first day where we were sent to the interpreting booth for practice i realized that i was born to be an interpreter i just knew it and uh, I loved it. I forgot about my career as an astronaut, and I was very I abandoned space. Yes, but I I didn't know back then that I will be surrounded by stars later on <laughs> in life. <laughs> so That's so, true. so you got close. To it. Yes, I, I got close mm-hmm. to to that that particular dream, and uh, I loved. The feeling of being in the booth as a student, and I also loved the feeling of doing consecutive interpretation. And I, I was very good at it. I learned how to do it, so that helped me later on in life. Because as a diplomatic interpreter, we do use consecutive, and we use consecutive as it was used in the old days. So it's long very long and I felt very comfortable about it and uh, in my career I run into situations where I was the youngest in many groups of interpreters and mm-hmm. when the um, the chief interpreter or the person coordinating the the event would say we need a consecutive interpreter and I was the only one with my hand up so people started realizing that I enjoyed it I was good at it and in diplomatic interpreting part of the profile of uh, well of the job description actually is to perform consecutive interpretations so that automatically well that segued my way into diplomatic interpreting because when there was a need for one new member of the team that would accompany presidents well my name came up i took a test and uh, it's been eight years now wow so you took the test here in mexico (laughs) yes 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 
And who who <laughs> does that testing? Is it the Department of State or no? In Mexico, it's different. It mm -hmm. uh, that uh, job is outsourced. Mm -hmm. So the there's a company that uh, well for over. 70 years has had that contract and uh, they're very good at what they do they're very experienced in diplomatic mm -hmm. interpreting so so basically it was with them so you took a test mm -hmm. to become mm -hmm. what do they call it certified licensed uh, it's, expert well well the king of the world <laughs> queen of the universe <laughs> what's the designation Well, I don't think it has a test. It was a test made by the actual government because when they sent out a bid, they ask the companies, well, tons of requirements. They have to present many, many, many papers to confirm that they have everything in place. And in that particular occasion, when the bid was out for that administration, a test was made by the by the government, and all the oh. all the contractors had to bring their own interpreters, and we. Were all tested. And take the test. Yes, yes. So that was for that specific function, not mm -hmm. a, like a universal test. No, 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 no. For that specific function, wow. for the bid that wow. was sent out. So. So what was your first job as a diplomat interpreter? I remember it was for President Calderon when Joe Biden came. Mm. It was. It must have been in the last 18 months of his administration okay. so there was an official visit and uh, I remember that it was yes it took place at Los Pinos and I was of course terrified because mm -hmm. uh, he's very well Joe Biden is very clever when he's He speaks. He is. Mm -hmm. uh, he inserts a bit of humor. So mm -hmm. I knew it was going to be a hard to handle it situation. It, it yes, but it all went good. Cool. And they, <laughs> or when they start using mm -hmm. puns or sayings, mm -hmm. and that that makes it a little bit more complicated. So not everybody knows mm -hmm. what Los Pinos is. So could you tell us what Los Pinos is? I know that it means the pines, <laughs> but what is Los Pinos? Los Pinos is the official residence for the presidents. And they have mm -hmm. a house there and they have offices. <coughs> Excuse me. Yes. Yeah, so so it's usually where, well, it used to be the Castillo Chapultepec during the Porfirian years where the, <coughs> oh, I'm sorry, where the presidents used to live, but then they changed it to Los Pinos. So it's right in the middle of Chapultepec Park. It's a beautiful place. And uh, yeah, they, they have uh, some buildings set for offices and for the residents. So Joe Biden gets here, and that Inca is the official interpreter. Mm -hmm. Did you do you work in teams, or yes. were you the only interpreter? No, 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 no. I was part of uh, of a team. So usually we 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 take turns when we travel. Sometimes we travel in teams of two or three, but back then it was only two of us. They, Now, how does it work? Does it mm -hmm. uh, do you interpret only from Spanish into mm -hmm. English, and then an American hired interpreter goes from <laughs> English into Spanish, or do you guys flip the coin? How does that work? Oh, that's right. That's a good question. I take all those things for granted because that's what we do every day. So usually, presidents or the the principal in a meeting, they in usually. People travel with their own interpreters. So in my case, I would be the voice of Mexico into English mm -hmm. or any other member of the team. Or if the, the 
president of France comes, we would have a French interpreter or a German interpreter. So there's always an interpreter assigned to Mexico, to the president、mm-hmm. and members of his cabinet. And you would have another interpreter from the visiting country, and we take turns. They're the voice of their president, and we are the voice of our president. So, usually you go in one direction only in those kinds of meetings? If there are two interpreters present, yes. But sometimes only one side has an interpreter、totally. there to help, and we do both. Oh, good. But good. in official visits, usually teams of interpreters come along with the presidents. And I've noticed,、mm-hmm. I think, at least once that some of the Mexican presidents still use interpreters, even though they might be completely fluent in English. Yes. They still. Uh, use us. So you see, people, we will be used even if we are supposedly not needed, right? Yes, exactly. We as diplomatic interpreters are there to ensure that communication flows without any misunderstanding, without any mistake, which is how can I say this? It's almost impossible because、mm-hmm. in human communication, misunderstandings are common and、uh, people think they said one thing, but they, what they thought was not what they said. So、mm-hmm. it's, it's human to communicate and misunderstandings happen along the way. So it is a lot of, it's, it's a huge responsibility. So we are there to ensure that there are no misunderstandings. Do you do more long consecutive? Do you do simultaneous? And when you do simultaneous, do you use equipment or how does that work? We use all of the known modes of interpreting. When there is a one on one meeting, for example, and there's only the two presidents having a conversation, we don't use equipment.、Mm-hmm. We would use whispering or consecutive、mm-hmm. if, if we're needed. Because, as you said, many people speak English fluently and we're just there as a backup. Or if they want to consult what is the best way to say this or that,、mm-hmm. especially for puns and And uh, sayings in Mexico, we use a lot of sayings and idioms,、mm-hmm. so that's when they would consult us as well. And,、uh, but if there is a large meeting where you have the president and the whole cabinet, of course, you will have a long table and whispering doesn't work.、Mm-hmm. So, in that case, you would see the, the, the normal setup a booth, and everybody, if they need interpretation services, they would use the headset. And During、uh, a dinner, for example, or a lunch, they would make a toast. So basically, that's when we would use long, long consecutive, or when they are addressing a large stadium, for example, or、uh, in the Socalo, for example.、Uh, I haven't interpreted in consecutive in the Socalo now that I think about it, but that's the image that comes to mind in the main square. You have Many, many people, thousands of people, and that would be impossible to give each one of them、uh, a headset. A headset. So, so, yeah, the three modes of interpreting are used. So, now let me backtrack、place. a little bit because、mm-hmm. you told us that you studied、mm-hmm. here in Mexico, but even as far as I understand, you studied interpretation somewhere else. Is that true? Yes. Yes, I studied. I, I hold two masters, one in forensic linguistics from Aston University in Birmingham in the UK. And I'm also a trainer of interpreters. So the only program that I could find that actually is the best program available for training interpreters is the one offered by the University of Geneva. And,、uh, and that's、uh, where I studied. 
And and that mm-hmm. University of Geneva is is that a master's degree or is yes it, okay. yes all of the programs they offer are master's degree and I do think they have some courses but uh, it's usually graduate studies. Wow! So mm-hmm. you're probably uh, I'll, I'll be tra- I'll be honest I'll be training interpreters for a while but I don't know a lot of people that can say they went to a master's degree on how to train interpreters. So how did you find that program? Mm-hmm. Uh, Did you just go on the internet and say, "Where do I get trained?" <laughs> that's that's right, and that that's very true. It's it's actually uh, a new uh, a new area of study. Well, we're a very young profession, so mm-hmm. it's conference interpreting is, I guess, if I'm not doing the math wrong, seven sixty three years old. I guess. Well, well, let's say let's mm-hmm. round it up, seventy years old. Mm-hmm. So, as you can imagine, programs. Uh, are new and uh, to study uh, a PhD, for example, is a new thing as well mm-hmm. in interpreting. So I just asked around and I wanted to, to to study because as a trainer, you might have experiences. You start asking questions. Why are students doing this? Why mm-hmm. are students doing that? And we need some theory to explain that. And uh, I, I went on the internet and started asking where where do interpreters go to study to teach? And mm-hmm. uh, that's how I got to the, to this program. How long did you stay there at Geneva? Oh, it was an online program, and that's oh, also fantastic. changing. Yes, yes, that's that's also changing. So I only had to be there for a couple of weeks, uh-huh. and. Uh, And everything was was delivered online. It was a nice experience. So it actually helped mm-hmm. you use technology remotely mm-hmm. as an interpreter and a trainer. So that is exactly because that is changing the way we work and the technologies that we use are changing. So studying online can be a nice way to step your foot on the door of. Uh, remote interpreting for example and, and mm-hmm. you no longer have to travel to Geneva which would be a little bit more expensive than taking it online especially if you have exactly. to be there for a couple of years exactly and uh, as a practicing interpreter I just couldn't take two years of my life so mm-hmm. that well my life as an interpreter that's right that's yes, right yeah, because, uh, we have to yeah. earn a living too yes. <laughs> exactly so that was a good way to study and continue doing my job and uh I got uh, I got a lot of support from the agency that I was working well, and I actually got a grant to study oh, that wow. master's. Yes, Do you from have the any other grants or <laughs> any <laughs> tips on how to but, get but grants? You, you can apply. Yes, mm-hmm. of course. The Fundación Italia Moraita usually well has very interesting support programs. So that's okay. how I got uh, that partial grant to so study. So seek mm-hmm. and you shall find, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yes. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned also mm-hmm. that you do now. Legal interpretation is mm-hmm. that here in Mexico, and tell us a little bit about the evolution of uh, legal interpreting here in, in Mexico. It's a new field. It started in the year two thousand and eleven under President Fox. Uh, they started changing the way criminal justice is administered in Mexico. So it took a long time to change the code of criminal procedures, to change the constitution, to have all the changes implemented, to have a a system that it's similar to what you see in your court. So now Mexican Mexican courts follow uh, 
uh, system that it's a combination of the British system, the Chilean system, the German system, and the American system. So it's a Frankenstein. <laughs> it's a Frankenstein system. That's yeah. a good way of putting it. Yeah. But, and and mm-hmm. clarify a little bit for us, mm-hmm. because of course, for us who live mm-hmm. in the States, we have heard, oh, it's the Mexican system or maybe the Argentinian or Chilean system. It's modeled after the U.S., but it's kind of sort of, but not exactly. For instance, do they have jurors here? That's so. right. No, Well, we don't have a jury. Mm-hmm. We have a panel of three judges. That was the, the final uh, decision after they considered many, many, many different options. So we don't have a jury, but there... There is a judge, a presiding judge, and a panel of two for specific cases. But the main difference between your system and the one we used to have is that uh, we we would file a lot of documents. So everything would have to be taken to the judge, and probably defendants would never have to see the judge. So it was an inquisitorial system, that's how they call it. Mm-hmm. And it was a combination of a, of a little bit of Roman law and uh, an adaptation of certain laws that came from Spain back in well uh, way back back in the day exactly so we used to have a system that didn't work very well mm-hmm. so it's changed and starting in July 2006 every state in Mexico now it's compulsory that they use open hearings and it might sound obvious for you because mm-hmm. you've had that system for uh, yeah forever mm-hmm. so for us it's new to go to court and be able to just go to court and just enter any of the of the courtrooms that have a public hearing and people can witness what's what is happening and uh, wow. and is that in criminal and civil law it's mostly criminal okay mm-hmm. okay so we bring a bunch of interpreters from the U.S. You'll invite us one day and we'll oh, go over of course, to, of and course. sit in a courtroom and we could watch justice being Justice, dispensed. exactly. So that's what got me interested in forensic linguistics because as an interpreter, I knew that we were going to be called and there would eventually be a need for interpreters in the new system because before translators did most of the work. Because it was all through documentation. Yes, they would just uh, yeah through documents. So I said, well, I need to learn how to train interpreters to perform as professionals because we're going to be needed at court. And so far, I've been on the list that uh, the Mexico City court has, and I've been called to court two times. Oh, wow. So that's how busy courts are for interpreters. Two times in, two times in five years. So that means that there's not a lot of people that require interpreters here in, the, in Mexico? Not in the languages that, that, that uh, yes, I have in my combination, but to consider we have in Mexico 69 indi- indigenous languages, mm-hmm. and there's a large deaf population. Mm-hmm. So sign languages interpreters are needed, and indigenous languages interpreters are needed. But not many... Well, if I would live in Cancun, for example, that would be... Uh, a, a busy place for interpreters because a well, lot of tourists, yes, <laughs> those spring breakers get into trouble, mm-hmm. but um, but not in Mexico City. So mm-hmm. it's very interesting that you say indigenous mm-hmm. languages because mm-hmm. more and more in the United States, they're starting to realize that indigenous mm-hmm. languages are different languages. That mm-hmm. if you were born mm-hmm. in Oaxaca, Mexico, that doesn't mean that you speak Spanish. Men- and in fact, some people might speak very little or no Spanish. And those are the people that you say need services here in in Mexico. Exactly. And uh, what happens is that uh, in some cases, 
in some parts of Mexico, they migrate to the United States and you might mm -hmm. find communities yeah. that speak English and the indigenous language and they don't speak Spanish. That's so right. when they come back, they are in trouble. Yeah, they If are. they run in, <laughs> into trouble, into trouble in themselves. The <laughs> yes. But we are also <laughs> finding some people, and I, mm -hmm. I've been called more than once to mm -hmm. court, when the person is from Mexico and they mm -hmm. immediately assume they speak Spanish and they struggle to say a few words in Spanish, but they don't speak Spanish. Exactly. And mm -hmm. it's an interesting challenge for us to find somebody who speaks enough of that indigenous language and English to be a court interpreter. So I've been part of at least two occasions where we actually did relay interpreting and we mm -hmm. went from, I think it was mom to Spanish to English back to mom, Spanish and back to mom. Which wow. Was very, uh, it was taxing and I'm mm -hmm. hoping it was pretty good. But I'm we sure couldn't it find was. anybody mm -hmm. that could do mom to English directly. Wow. Yeah. So. so That's so 69, you said indigenous languages are recognized here as... Yes, 69, they call it linguistic families. So okay. that, if you add to that the local variations of that specific language, I think it's around 400, but the main languages are, are 69. And when you became or started working mm -hmm. for the courts here in Mexico, did you have to take a certification exam? Are oh, yes, yes. For, for expert witness or what do they consider? We're you? called... Peritos, mm. which I believe it's the I closest equivalent to mm. expert mm. expert witnesses. So yes, every state has its own legislation in terms of how they're going to add you to the list, but usually you have to take an exam. So you you take the exam, and if you pass it, your name appears on a list. And we have the same system for, well, here in Mexico, we have federal courts and mm -hmm. state courts. So they have their own system as well for federal courts. And did the courts, courts that mm -hmm. you go to to work, were there state courts or federal courts? State. Mm -hmm. State. Okay. Mm -hmm. And this was here in Mexico City? Yes. yes. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Interesting. So then tell us about you becoming a YouTube sensation, because oh. I know that... Uh, <laughs> oh, that video. We were talking about, oh, that Inca's video. So tell us, what was going on there? Well, it was a video when Noam Chomsky came for a conference at uh, the UNAM University. And before the large conference where they talked about, um, it, I think it was le, the name was Civilization Under Siege. So it was very close from the moment when Trump wanted to build the wall. So mm -hmm. uh, many, many thinkers decided that it was time to talk about it, uh, about the the state of civilization in general mm -hmm. as a, a way to counteract that kind of, of rhetoric. So mm -hmm. they met here in Mexico and Noam Chomsky came and he was interviewed by the media. Every newspaper was there. So I was asked to do consecutive and it was one of my best consecutives ever that was broadcasted live. Mm -hmm. And uh, a colleague saw it and decided to share it on Facebook and it went viral. But mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. It was, you can imagine having someone of his stature sure. there and having the honor to be his voice, specifically speaking about a very important topic okay. that many people react to. And, and I mean, he's a, one of the brightest minds that that we have had in the world. And, and I 
was next to him playing right. his that poison. Was, that was super, <laughs> like you said, surrounded by stars, right? <laughs> exactly. So, so you were aware mm-hmm. that they were filming and, and mm-hmm. broadcasting live. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. Did you get nervous or by then you were used to it? I am used to controlling the the way my body reacts to stress mm-hmm. and uh, well when I told you about how I wanted to be an astronaut at one point in my life I used to be a track and run athlete mm-hmm. so I when we were on on the tracks waiting for the signal when they they should they mm-hmm. should have gone so that was a very good way for me to train my body to control well the the signals of uh, of stress because uh, straight stage fright is real and yeah. i do get nervous of course but i've managed to make that uh, more of an adrenaline rush than uh, a situation where i panic so mm-hmm. so that that helped back in in my teenage years <laughs> right and, and tell us a little bit about that because i i hadn't even thought about it but obviously <laughs> if you're in negotiations of any kind you really can't show a reaction to what anybody's mm-hmm. saying as to mm-hmm. maybe roll your eyes or act mm-hmm. surprised so do you train to be kind of more poker faced when you're in these situations Well, I think I didn't have to train myself that much because you they are well you, our audience is not uh, not present but mm-hmm. uh I don't express many many feelings as mm-hmm. as Tarinka, so right. it doesn't it doesn't create a problem for me but inside of course of course a lot of emotions go on and we react to the words that uh, we convey on behalf of other people mm-hmm. so so in that sense yes we have to be aware of how much we express with, with our body with our faces but the fact that we have to be focused to a certain degree that we forget about ourselves helps but yes it can be very stressful if you're surrounded by media Yes, they they are very present, but they make a lot of noise and that can be very difficult for I would have, for, I would have, even <laughs> the cameras going on. Oh yes. Oh, I, yes. I, off, mm-hmm. I I just heard uh, a little bit of the chat that uh, President Trump and President Peña, Peña Nieto had mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. this NAFTA that is no longer called NAFTA apparently whatever is going to call be called <laughs> and you could uh-huh. hear those cameras constantly just sounding off mm-hmm. while the interpreter was trying to interpret you were not the interpreter at no, that time no. um and uh, i would imagine that that's quite distracting while you're trying to convey meaning and and uh, information Yes, yes, you have to keep your cool and uh well getting distracted can be a click. Right. It can be enough to keep it. Oh second. yes, oh yes, so you have to feel comfortable in those environments and can be photographers clicking with their with their cameras, it can be a aide approaching the president just to give him a message. So you have to be aware that that's going to be your reality and you have to function doesn't matter yeah. there's no excuse but that takes practice and that takes a lot of discipline yeah i was going to ask you <laughs> that too because one of the things that i was thinking is when i go to court and i work with with attorneys for instance mm-hmm. i sometimes give myself a little bit of time to talk to them and ask them if they have ever been uh they have ever used interpreters mm-hmm. and what's their experience and give them a little 
uh, 101, hey, listen, mm -hmm. short sentences, or whatever it is, first person, etc. Mm -hmm. uh, do you have these conversations with, with presidents and, and members of cabinets, or you just... Because I'm, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm trying to figure out, sometimes they might go long forever, and you do long consecutive, and then sometimes they might understand that maybe they should stop. So how does mm -hmm. that work? Is mm -hmm. it an intuitive thing? <coughs> the good thing that uh, happens with diplomatic interpreters that we are part of a team and usually we're going to be there for the whole administration. So right mm -hmm. at the beginning, it's the right time to explain to them what is the best way to to work with interpreters if it's possible. Some might be very experienced public speakers. They might have had interpreters, which is usually the case. So we don't have to do much explaining mm -hmm. work. And uh, in Mexico, for example, they have a protocol office and they are the ones who tell the, the secretaries or the presidents what is expected in each particular moment. For example, in the UK, during the, the official visits, the speeches are not interpreted. They are translated on a piece of paper and are left on the table for whomever needs it. They just read it, but that's the rule. So oh, they really? have to be informed of what is the prevailing rule in in the country that we're visiting. So sometimes it's compulsory or consecutive interpretation that is expected, or they would have a booth available. So if they haven't worked with interpreters before, they, sometimes they ask, do you want me to stop? Or sometimes we agree if it's a, um, a speech that they're going to read, they know that they have to pause every two or three paragraphs, mm -hmm. and they and they know if they don't pause, we would uh, we would follow their lead. But uh, yes, there are some times where we have some interaction in terms of uh, explaining how we do and how we can be the the best of help for them. I, I want to go back to what you just said, two or three paragraphs, because <laughs> you know when I train court interpreters and we talk about consecutive. They tell me, well, how many words, how many words is, am I going to hear? Is, and when you talk, well, maybe 30, 40, 40 words, oh my God, that <laughs> sounds like three paragraphs, a lot more than 40 words. So three paragraphs is something that you would do in this famous long consecutive. Not necessarily. Well, two or three paragraphs applies when they are going to read a speech mm -hmm. because... Uh, be Before, people were used to listening to the radio. So mm -hmm. let's say during World War II, people would wait until a speech would finish and then the interpreter would come and uh, deliver the speech in a different language. So people were used to waiting, let's ah, say, mm -hmm. 20 or oh, more more than 20 mm -hmm. years now. But now people, they, they just want the information right away. Right away. So mm -hmm. that's why they, if they're going to read a speech, they would stop. But when they are speaking of the cough, you can't stop them mid-sentence. So whenever they finish their ideas or a couple of ideas, we would step in. So that would could be five minutes sometimes. Wow, five minutes. Yeah. So mm -hmm. uh, again, for those of you who are concerned about 20 words, five <laughs> minutes is a lot more than 20 words. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And mm -hmm. I, actually, I want to renew my invitation for you to come <laughs> and, and give us a seminar on long consecutive because I think that it would be very well received or maybe we'll of do course. it online talking about this using technology because I know many of the people that are listening to us would be interested in what is, how do you jump from 20, 30, 40 words to mm -hmm. five minutes mm 
on even a very slow person, slow in the sense of speaking slowly, yes. uh, mm-hmm. would take five minutes. That would be 700 words or something like that. So yes. 40 seems insignificant compared <laughs> to 700. So how do you uh-huh. make that jump? And, uh, you know, obviously this mm-hmm. is not the time, by the way. Mm-hmm. We've gone over our time and I didn't want no to, to uh, <laughs> take advantage of your generosity. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to invite you mm-hmm. and renew this invitation because you need to tell us how do you make that long <laughs> jump. Maybe you took a little mm-hmm. bit of experience of your track and field as to how <laughs> the long jump happens from 20 good words analogy. to mm-hmm. 700 words. So I hope you had accept our invitation. To oh, of that. course, I would be delighted. Thank you very much for this invitation. I would be very happy to share. Uh, well, what works for me is not going to be the same strategy that can work for, for you, for example, and that's mm-hmm. that's the secret. We need to find out what can work for for how our mind works, and uh, we usually underestimate our our capabilities, specifically in terms of memory retention. We're not used to doing that. Even remembering phone numbers, well, the phone does that for you, so why should you care? But when it comes to delivering speeches, it's, um, it's amazing to see when people discover how much they can do when they try. Right. (laughs) <laughs> well, Darinka, I want to thank you very much for sharing all of this knowledge with you. I wish we could uh, have uh, three more hours, but uh, maybe you. we'll uh, have the pleasure to see you again, and, and, and uh, we will continue this conversation. So thank you very much. Wonderful. Thank you for this invitation. It's been a pleasure as well. Thank you, Augustine.